Welcome to the Clifford Chance Podcasts, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. This is the latest of our real-time podcast series, which focuses on real estate. I am Matt Taylor, partner in the real estate department and head of UK PropTech. And I'm here today with James Deersley, who's been recognised as one of the prominent thought leaders on the future of the real estate market, and has been nominated as one of the most influential people in PropTech. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm also here with Rob Donnell, who's a senior associate in the real estate team. Thanks, Matt. Great to see you, James. So to start, can we talk a little bit about your sort of personal journey through real estate and prop tech? Because um, I understand you started off as an estate agent. So how did you kind of go from that to being one of the leading figures in prop tech? You so politely left out Foxton's in that bit, because I can <laughs> see it in the question as well. Um, but no, I was very lucky. Um, you know, I look back on my on my sort of prop tech uh, sort of career and, and feel privileged to have been both on the tech side and also on the property side. Um, and I started my career out of university with a, um, a sort of a sudden need to uh, to go into the property field. And, uh, and I started working uh, with Foxtons. I was there for four years. Um, I was up to a branch manager for a period. And, and actually, I, I feel very privileged. I, I loved it. And, you know, part of the reasons why... Um, if I really look back at that time and, and look at how it sort of influenced my career moving forward, I was right there at the time in sort of late 90s, early 2000s when Foxton's went through um, its own digital transformation. You know, we talk a lot about digital transformation in prop tech. And, you know, when the real estate industry now, especially the residential sector, is looking at its own future and really it has to go through this journey of digital transformation, Foxton's did it back then when I was when I was there. You know, we moved from applicant cards where my entire training of the first week was how do I register an applicant and I put the details on a piece of paper and then that literally lived in a, in a box where I would then call them up every single day to um, sort of internally centralised linked um, CRM systems which effectively automated a lot of that process and really the, the, the sort of the techniques and the tools that Foxton's embedded then really fueled that growth over the sort of the... I mean, it took sort of three or four years to come in because there was a lot of adoption yeah. problems and people didn't want to use automated machines. And I saw those frustrations from the people as well. But um, it meant sort of from five years after that period for about the next sort of decade, that's where Foxton's has ruled the roost because they had everything absolutely linked from the front office to the back office. And, and I had a real privilege of, of being a part of that. Um, and that's where I started. Then I went into international real estate and did something very similar in there in terms of an international... Um, real estate company needing to sort of digitize and uh, and sort of come up to date a little bit more uh, and so I was, I was there for another seven years after Foxton's and and then decided that um, I, I should do something on my own that's it's, where I am it's quite a sort of scary step but it's quite interesting see, hearing that actually some like places like Foxton's really embraced it quite early and actually in some ways it's quite similar to how law firm, what law firms are going through now? Mm. Um, yeah, historically we've done everything's been paper based, reviews very manual, and suddenly over probably the last two three years, we're seeing a similar sort of move towards okay, what can we digitise? What can we use machine learning? Mm. And I think maybe we'll see the same sort of thing. Actually, the firms that get ahead of it, embed it, embrace it, and actually really get on with the technology have a period of competitive advantage anyway totally absolutely and I, and I think the lessons that i i learned from from foxton's there was was that technology adoption it's not just about the firm having competitive advantage for a period of time it was actually the individuals that worked within the company took a competitive advantage you know if i look at it and say was i the best negotiator when i was negotiating at the time 
Um, or was I just a person that understood the tools quicker than everybody else and learned that actually it was a force for good rather than, the, you know, like, it's not taking away my job, but actually if I worked with that technology, I would get an edge over everybody else. So if I look back into that very, very early 2000s, I wasn't the best neg, but I just knew how to work with the tech to make me the best neg. And I think we'll probably find that in, in the legal sector as well, which is the businesses with the most forward thinking will get the competitive edge and then the actual employees within those businesses who actually adopt quicker than others within the firm will also get the competitive advantage over others. So if we just go back to basics for a second, um, you mentioned digitising, you, you, there's, there's been other sort of little buzzwords used, technology being the biggest feature. Um, prop tech, the word, is an umbrella term. Yeah. It's got a lot of different definitions, people talk about it in different ways. How do you define prop tech? Um, yeah, let's just go back onto what you said about it being an umbrella word. I mean, you, you're damn right. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Um, it's a marketing term. And, and I remember, if you look at the history of it, it really started as, as the term retech or re-tech, um, from America. You know, the Americans really embraced this technological adoption a lot earlier than us in Europe and Asia. Um, and we were just like, you know, retech doesn't make any sense, so we applied the, the prop um, uh, side to it in the end. And that seems to have been now the globally adopted word. But applying a, defini a definition to it, it, I mean, it really wasn't defined. Um, at all, and I remember very clearly uh, the first academic report came out from Professor Andrew Bourne uh, about two years ago, and he very kindly invited me onto a panel with him to discuss it. And one of the questions from the floor was, "How do you define prop tech?" And, and I remember, I mean, it was the archetypal back of a napkin writing down what the definition was, and we said it. And Andrew was like, "Oh, okay, that's, that actually works quite well." Then afterwards, he disagreed with it, and we we sort of coined this definition. Um, and it's, it's loosely around the term of, you know, prop tech um, is really a, a wider part of digital transformation in the property industry. That's what it is. It's not, prop tech is not the thing. It's a symptom of the change of, of digital transformation. You know, looking at that wider, we're in a seven to ten year journey of digital transformation. We're right at the start. Some areas a little bit further ahead than others, but we're right at the start. And then what we went on to say was the fact that it's it's really discussing a mentality change within the industry and the consumers of the industry um, around technology-driven innovation. So it's not really about the actual technology itself, it's actually just around the mentality that us as consumers, and we spend 85% of our time in buildings, have now got to the way that we want things to work. So it's not the fact that we've got our iPads or our iPhones, it's the fact that we've been using them for so long that we now are asking questions as to why our industry, as consumers as well as employees of, um, it's not straightforward, it's not efficient, it's not practical. It's frustrating sometimes, it can be a bit laggy, it, it just doesn't work the way that we expect things to work. So we, we then talked about this mentality change, and then we just sort of looked at the industry as a whole, because the property industry, um, whilst we, I mean, I, I can't talk for you guys being in the legal sector, but you know, once you're in the property industry, you can't escape it. Um, but it's so vast, you know, it's construction, it's retail, it's commercial, it's residential. And then all these sort of um, other sort of subsectors around it, legal tech, mortgage tech, uh, construction technology, all of that are sort of linked in. So we tried to then sort of wrap it around and say, well, what's the final bit? And it's in the, the sort of the data assembly, the design and the transactions of buildings and cities was that final bit of the definition which we talk about. Because we've got to realise that prop tech is overarching. I mean, it's, it's endless. And that's part of the problems and the frustrations that we have as an industry, which is so many people are impacted by it. Uh, and I think 
you've got to remember the real estate market is the second largest asset class in the entire world and as a consequence it's always going to be broad so that definition is a bit hard what's quite interesting actually where you say it's it's a lot of it is about the attitude to embracing digital change it's actually quite rings true because a lot of property companies a lot of clients have often said actually they know they want to get into prop tech but they don't really know exactly where they start but actually yeah. if you look at it as it's all about embracing digital change actually that's a pretty valid first step which is recognizing actually it's about how do we update our business models our technology our processes and all of that bringing it together yeah absolutely i mean i think the first it's a bit like being an alcoholic you know the first step is admitting you are yeah um i think with with the property industry i think that first step is understanding and acknowledging that change is happening something is impacting it and i think you can you can read into that just looking at the investment um, thesis around what VCs are doing at the minute. You can understand that there's so much money being piled into this that it's not going away. So I think the first step is, okay, something's happening. Let's try and understand what's going on. And, and we're seeing that. I mean, with, with Unicy, the platform that we've built, you know, we go to the clients and say, you know, what are you trying to do? You know, how can we help you? What are you doing? And, and they're simply saying, we're just researching. We're just trying to understand this change. We don't know where to go. There's no sort of trusted resource. And, and that's what we found is, first thing, acknowledging change. Second thing is researching it and understanding it. Um, and I think once we've done that bit, we've then got to realise that actually this is a, it could be a five to ten year process. It could be a generational process in some times. I mean, Matt, I know you talk about tokenization in real estate quite yeah. a lot, and there's an interest around that. You know, I've got particular interest in that, and that's going to be generational shifts yeah. which will come in. It's not going to happen tomorrow. And I think the biggest lesson or the biggest mistake we could make as an industry is putting the blinkers around our eyes, not acknowledging something's happening. And I think the boards of directors the and the C-suite level of some of these larger property companies, the biggest mistake they'll make is not doing anything, yeah. is not realising something's happening and saying, Do you know what, I'm not going to be here in 10 years' time. It's not going to impact me. It's not going to impact my business while I'm under tenure and I'm you know, in yeah. charge. It's a bit like I often talk about Alex Ferguson at Man United. He left and it all, you know, sort of yeah. all shelved and it all went wrong. Could it be like that? So my, my challenge to the business audience, the C-suites, is think about the legacy of the business. You know, once you've gone, you're not going to see the changes you put in. Just open up your mind, start training people around you, and start to look at the innovations and see what you can do with it. To pick one point is we work prop tech. <laughs> no, of course it's not prop tech. They're a technology-enabled real estate company, yeah, for sure. That is absolutely no doubt. They're investing in prop tech, yeah, for sure, absolutely no doubt. Um, and lastly, I would just suggest that the valuations they're receiving as business—they're being valued like a tech company, yeah, but they're not. They're a real estate firm doing something quite different. So they're actually possibly better looked at as an example of traditional property that's actually moved. You know, from inception in their case, but move to this sort of embracing the digital model. What do people, customers want? Yeah, there's lots of other competitors who do the same sort of thing, but it's but it's interesting actually to look at it that way around rather than they are a startup prop tech company. Yeah, totally. they're, the, they're the traditional property side. Um, if if we work at one of those who who have um, adapted perhaps part of uh, as part of their um, startup uh, nature. Um, what about some of the more traditional real estate companies? Uh, have you seen any of them, I don't know, being chameleons and, and, and adapting well to this pressurising process as well? Ah, oh, that's a good question, Rob. Um, so let me let me 
have a sort of a catch-all um, answer there, in a sense, which isn't a cop-out as such, but it is a, a true reflection of what I'm seeing. The, the real estate industry is, is in this big education stage. Uh, it's in a big period where it's trying to understand what its value proposition is today so that it, it can start to understand what it needs to be in the next five to ten years. We've got some, and what I won't do is I won't name names because I think it would be wrong for me to do so, but we've got some very, very, very big listed businesses who are starting to invest and allocate capital in smaller businesses. And in some cases, I think that is because they've got a genuine interest in the sector. In other cases, and certainly in a few that I know, I think they're almost, it's a, it's a hedge bet so that they're protecting their own future. If their business model isn't working, they've actually got their sort of a protectionist um, aspect. So I'm certainly seeing that a little bit in some of the more forward-thinking larger firms. Um, and I'm actually I'm talking here really about the UK, and I can I can diversify out if need be. But I'm also then seeing other firms where they're creating the uh, the infrastructure to enable them to benefit from prop tech. Um, solutions. So you've got some businesses who are creating incubators and they're starting to recognise that actually um, you've got prop tech businesses who may or may not have a good solution but what they need to do as a, as a, uh, as a business is to test their hypotheses, test their product but they haven't got access to product. You've got the big corporations who've got the product but haven't got the entrepreneurs as they want to call them to develop product to suit their clients or their buildings or whatever and so they recognize or they're starting to recognize that actually they need to be enabling and encouraging these businesses to work together so they're building incubators to give them product maybe invest in them in a little way and that if the terms are right is to, is a really good way to go i think because it is it's a match made in heaven for, for the two parties to come together um, and then lastly on on certainly from a uk perspective i'm starting to see um People probably a little bit earlier on in the journey starting to do the right thing and saying, well, as a, a C-suite level or a, or a sort of a management level below that, how can I start to educate us as a, as a board and bring in people that can help us? And some of them are property people where they might be bringing in directors of innovation or chief data um, directors or um, information uh, experience, offices, all of these sorts of job titles which weren't around five years ago and they're starting to say we need to get educated. Now there's a problem in that though for me and I've seen it just last week we had a very very senior appointment at a, at a property company um, leave within about six months of being in the role and to use their term which is that the company just wasn't ready. You know I was seen as this person to come in and look at the innovation strategy of the business but actually I was seen by the business as the IT guy yeah. who would go and change the cables or I would go and you know muck the desks around to move the computer and, and you know that's not yeah, I, I've heard that before and it's this real if you, as you said the company's not ready to understand that actually a director of innovation is not the IT support guy then it's shocking you've right? got to change the rest yeah. of the uh, you've got to change the rest of the system but but that comes down to that digital transformation thing which yeah. is unless you as a business know the direction that you are taking um, and you understand the value that people like that bring to a business, unless you, and this comes back to that value proposition point, which is this is where I am now, this is what I mean to my clients, this is what my competitors mean to my clients, and this is where we're looking to go. There's no agenda for this person, this appointment. Yeah. They're just there because you think it's the right thing to do. You have to bring them in at the absolute top 
digital transformation has to be at the absolute pinnacle of every single meeting that you're in and ask yourself, why are we doing it? Where do we need to be? And, you know, in that case, you know, they were not in the right role. The company wasn't ready for it. Yeah. They were thinking the right things, but they weren't doing the right things. And it's a big difference. I think one of the other points, just pick up, you said around particularly the incubators and the intrapreneurships that companies take. I think there's a really difficult balance. I mean, some people are getting it right, but there is a difficult balance between some of the larger property companies taking in some of the startups and almost embedding them too deeply within their own organization, which which stifles the product. It becomes a proprietary used by them and their client, and it doesn't get that growth. You can kind of stifle that growth early on. That's a really, really difficult thing to balance it. So bring it back to on the legal tech side, we see a mm. similar thing. If that, when we're looking at some products and things, you see things like, oh, this would be great. Your natural instinct is almost like, is, can we be the exclusive user? Can we be? Yeah, 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 I get it. And that actually can be really bad for the product and actually really bad then for end users because it just stifles other firms coming in. And it's a real mind shift to be a kind of bit more looking at this from, okay, how can we encourage this product to grow and do well and the sort of rising tide will float all boats and that, that sort of yeah. approach. It's like it's like hugging your children too tightly. Yeah. You've kind of got to let it go really, haven't you? At yeah. some point you've got to do it. Let them roll around in the mud and pick up <laughs> yeah. and all sorts. Yeah, yeah. you've got to do it. But, yeah. but bringing that analogy back into the into the thing, it's not just on the incubator side. I mean, and, and you're absolutely right, Matt, you hit the nail on the head, um, which, and I don't think prop techs are actually looking at it because in some cases they're so desperate to say, well, all my life we've just had this case study and we can really go and use our product for the first time and they're not realizing that the exclusivity angle of that could be a big risk but you also see that a little bit in the accelerator side you know some of the accelerators and again i won't go into into the name details of this but you know when your your lps are maybe single entities in a sing, you know like a single brand there's a huge risk yeah because then you get pigeonholed into that brand and they want to use that and they'll have the exclusivity rights and all that sort of stuff and that's a massive problem you know, you've got to look at accelerators with multiple LPs from multiple sectors as well to diversify the the groups that are going in and the cohorts. Otherwise, you know, it just loses its emphasis after the first couple of cohorts. What I do find encouraging, though, is that the sort of discussions we're having now are really about how big property companies and ex- traditional property, what are they doing well, what are they doing wrong? But at least on the bright side now, they are actually doing things. Whereas I think if we had this conversation maybe three, four years ago, it will have been more about are people actually going to start investing? Are they actually going to bring on any, you know, starting an incubator and things would have been a really radical thing yeah. five, six years ago. Whereas now it's quite interesting. Conversations moved on to this is working, this isn't working, this is the better way to do it, this isn't. Yeah, but I think there, there's, a, there's an inherent risk that we're starting to see and, I, and I, it worries me a little bit. But just to talk about this whole this whole growth in the sector thing, just to give an example, and this is not UK, this is global. I, I went to 20 different countries in Q4 of last year, 2018, uh, to speak or keynote at large property conferences, not prop tech conferences, property conferences, because it's now at the top of their agenda. They realise that the industry's woken up and it's it's hungry for this information. So we're in this, this stage of, of learning. What I, what worries me is as an industry, we are too frightened of failing 
And as a consequence, a little bit like you said at the start here, Matt, where you know lawyers want to be perfect. We want to make sure everything is done absolutely correct. And that's what our clients expect of us as Clifford Chance to be absolutely perfect all of the time. There's a similar reasoning in the property industry, which is our clients expect perfection. And what we as an industry have to start realizing is that's not really going to necessarily work as you're bringing in new product lines, new innovations, where you know the way that digital transformation works is you've got to fail fast, fail quickly. You know, and an innovation mindset is bring products in, test them. Does the customer want them? Do they not? And as long as there's that two-way conversation between you and your end user to say, look, we're innovating, we're changing, and we're evolving, and we want your help. We want a two-way conversation, what you like and what you don't want, because we don't want to build something that we think is perfect. We deploy it to you, and you say, actually, it's great, but we're only going to use it once or twice. Yeah. And, and that is a really hard thing for an industry built on trust, respect, credibility for decades and again, this is where the boards of directors have got a real inward sort of um, question to ask, which is, are we the right people to be able to do that? Because we built our own business credibility and our own personal credibility on perfection. Yeah. And now what we're doing is changing that. Particularly given the speed of a, you know, if you're a real estate developer, failing fast doesn't really work when you're oh, putting God, up no. large buildings. You know, it's, it's not a, that isn't the model. The mindset is plan, program, yeah. get it right do it the most efficient route but really you're on a long multi-year program whereas yeah. obviously the innovation mindset like you say is okay let's spend a month looking at this let's what can we build a minimum viable product in yeah. two weeks it's a really different mindset actually and it's not it's always really right point. you know let's, let's be honest i mean i i come here as an evangelist actually i don't come here as an evangelist of the technology industry what i come is i come as a passionate supporter of seeing change in the property market and what i know is that the property market isn't right the prop tech sector isn't right. But somewhere in both areas of that, there are people who've got the right ability to work together to develop something really exciting, really cool, and to look forward for the next generation. And I think that's where we've got to focus. So as a property industry, we've got to realise that there are processes and things that we do which can be improved. And I think we've got to look inward and say, we know we can do that. We've got these property technology companies, of which there's about 750 in the UK alone, that's going to be massively consolidated over the next five to ten years. I mean, that's going to come crashing down. But what will happen is the ones which are still surviving will hopefully be integrated almost intimately within the property market with both of the people, or peoples, sorry, who have got the right mindsets, got the right products, where the property industry can help the guys who've got the right ideas develop the products further to actually help the industry. And the stupid products which are never going to work and have just got funding because they're riding a wave of this you know, VC enthusiasm at the minute yep. will have gone by the wayside. And, and that's what we've got to get to, is an understanding no one is absolutely right and no one is wrong, but unless we're embracing and engaging with each other, it's never going to get anywhere. So what do you think then, if you kind of fast forwarded 15 years or something like that, what, what do you think will have happened with PropTech? I mean, you sort of said largely it's about this sort of integrating but can you see any really if you were putting your kind of real speculative future hat on what's going to be different about how we occupy buildings oh flying cars we're going to have the whole thing no it's rubbish isn't it um i i think let's just be very very um uh, boring about it 15 years it's um it's a good time i think from a a if we're going to keep these industries separate 
which I said earlier on, they need to embrace each other. But if we're going to keep them separate, I think the 7,000 plus businesses that we're currently tracking, we're going to see a massive decrease in that. I think we're going to see, you know, probably even not even going to be 30 to 40% of that number of businesses out there. I think that's number one. I think what we will have seen over that period of time is a, is a tremendous increase in funding. You know, you look at the the, talk, the sorts of money that we've mentioned. We work yeah. earlier on. You look at some of the. Um, I mean, SoftBank is fueling all of this at the minute yeah. in, in America. Um, you know, I think it was in Clutter, the the home moving area. You know, the money that they're putting into these established and proven business models is eye watering. But that's very U.S. focused. I think over the next ten to fifteen years, we're going to see massive figures coming into the U.K. Uh, into Asia as well coming in there so I think we're going to see increases in funding I think we're going to see decreases in funding and events um, but I think really that the most uh, and this it sounds so boring because I could really go off on a, on a real tangent with some technologies but we're just going to see a widespread adoption of the property industry into technology and I think if we want to get any more detail than that I, I think it's just becoming speculative rubbish I think we've just got to understand the property industry that is a generational shift in the property industry we will see it integrating. So it won't be property prop tech. We will just see a technology-enabled real estate industry. What about the property companies that uh, are resistant to adopting prop tech? Where do you see them being in 15 years? Oh, they'll still be here. They'll still be here. Yeah, they'll be kicking around. Um, they won't be... My, my suggestion is that they won't be as powerful as they once were. I think um, the what we'll see over the 15 years is the businesses that start to become technology enabled and adopt these sorts of new business models and new changes will take an initial drop in profits and turnovers as they're establishing new business models and new business lines and new products and all this sort of stuff and then what will happen is they will become a lot more diversified in the way that they're bring, building in their profits and over time they will become more powerful and equally they will become um, less risky yeah. because their profits and their money is coming in from many different um, sources and you can actually if you now go back 15 years and you look at the differences and the residential sector between Rightmove and Zoopla as a yeah. classic case point which you can now move forward 15 years and say Rightmove have not done anything they are suffering or going to suffer the classic case of the innovators dilemma their business was so profitable. The net profit margins was absolutely frighteningly good. They were brilliant. But they're good at one thing and one thing only. And what they've done is they've never... I think they've actually now invested just twice. You look at Zoopla, who were the one-trick pony as yep. well as Right Move. But then when threats came in on their market, they took the decision to go along the horizontal value chain and invest in lots of different product lines from data to utility services to the whole raft of how can we get ourselves into every single aspect of the individual's property purchase and the seven to ten years of them not moving yeah and what Zoopla have done there is they've embedded themselves into our daily lives and it's not they're not a property search engine anymore yeah people use it they it's a just Zoopling their property for funds, see what see what's happened to the valuation, all of. Well, but and more than that, you know, we're using Zoopla-based services when we don't even realise we're using them. You know, utility switching and all those sorts of things. So they've become not just about. Uh, if you look at the property ownership lifecycle, where you're buying property, they're now in the managed cycle as well. Yeah. So when you're not buying the property, you're actually still engaging with their brand. And and I think to come back to your point, Rob. Sorry, I've sort of gone off on a tangent there, but. 
that's really what I'm, I think is going to happen over these sort of years. You know, there will be the people who just stick with their business model because they're comfortable with it. They don't have to take any risk. You know, they do that whole thing of the risk is not doing anything. Um, whereas you're going to have some businesses who will try and some will fail. But there'll be some, you know, the businesses of today will not be the big businesses of tomorrow. And that, I guess, is particularly important when you consider property has always traditionally been, you know, um, secular. There is always going to be a downturn that comes around the corner. And that maybe is sort of how the winners and losers will shake out is actually who's less risky. As you said, that might be the, the really important bit that goes on to this in how pe companies survive. And um, just to finish off, you on your podcast, you always used to sort of ask the question, if I gave you ten thousand, you know, ten thousand pounds, what startup would you would you invest in? You're not allowed to ask me my own question. I'm going to ask you what what prop tech startup is one that you would watch. Uh, yeah, obviously oh. Unisu, of course, but oh, or what area of you want to be sort of kinder around that? No, okay, so uh, it, it's almost it is almost the impossible question, um, and I and I genuinely passionately don't ask myself that question um, so let me uh, uh, let me think about this I, I would uh, I'm, I'm often asked which sector most interests me yeah. um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that first and say that anything that is creating an underlying platform on which to build on interests me yeah. blockchain interests me, artificial intelligence interests me Anything around that IoT smart stuff interests me because it, it's it's not risk free, but you know they're going to be the solid building blocks of whatever comes around the corner. Um, so, so as sectors, they they would get my investment. Um, in terms of uh, where I would put my money, um, I like some crazy ideas. I'm I'm a little bit more risky than some. I think. Again, if it was not a technology but a sector, I think property management is, there's always going to be huge winners and single winners in property management. Yeah. Um, but if I'm looking forward, I quite, I mean, there's a, a company I heard about a long time. I haven't done much, any due diligence on it or anything um, in particular, but I like the concept of the futuristic perspective they have. It's, a, it's actually a London company not far away from here in London Bridge called Skyscape, um, who they originally, um, they, they use artificial intelligence to scan the rooftops of buildings because I think one of the big threats we've got as cities is we, we run out of space so one of the obvious things is to build on top of buildings yeah. um, and and they have um, or they had I mean this is going back a year 18 months I mean it shows it sticks in my brain but um, they use visualized AI to essentially um, look at or find buildings which could be built on top of um, and then there's an extension of that to actually look at the leases to see whether or not they could conceivably be built on top of. So firstly, identifying and secondly, then understanding. And because I think the concept there of not only just using it as buildings, but using it for things like vertical farming, um, you know, can we uh, use that gyms um, and, you know, the, the rather out there theory, but I think it's a very sensible one is to understand um, in this world of the last mile delivery side, are they suitable drone landings for drones to come on top of and, and go into so you know the reason I'm giving you that is because it's it shows you the scope of where it can go to it's not what I would call the boring prop tech but it's, it's the interesting tech and I think there's applications for yeah. most major cities where you could analyze rooftops it's quite a good example of what you're saying earlier about being able to kind of pivot quickly and change and yeah business that started off as well as just where can it 
expand to where can we build on top of it yeah you can see as you said kind of that as other technology changes becomes more relevant in other ways well i'll tell you i'll give you another example of, of another company that i was thinking of but i can't remember the name of it because i know they've they've changed the name but it's again it's around drone delivery for me it's around the last mile logistics of everything um and in this case they were um looking at we, we map and we understand the city floor we understand the roads and where they go because we've mapped the city floors for years and years and years centuries we also understand um how aircraft fly we understand the um the vertical heights that air, airlines can fly over the city. So we have maps of that bit. So we have maps up high and the maps down low. What we're not mapping is the middle bit, where the buildings are. Yeah. We have no sense of you know, uh, 50 metres or 100 metres or 200 metres as to what that landscape looks like. So again, for drones as they're coming around and they're flying around, and this could be for deliveries, because that's the, the sort of populist view, or it could be as simple as one of the things that people are starting to look at is how do they get medical supplies and health supplies to people quicker if they have a heart attack? Can you actually fly in cardiac, what do you call them? You know, the jump things. Yeah, those, yeah ones, exactly. those ones. How do you get them to an emergency situation a lot quicker? The problem is there's no mapping of that. There's no mapping of that mid-air space. So there's a company which was looking at doing that. I mean, some of the cleverest people I've ever heard about were on this board doing this stuff. And I was like, that is absolutely brilliant. But there wasn't the market, it's too early. Yeah. So they've had to pivot around and say, well, actually, hang on a second. We're just going to now sell um, real-time drone insurance for drone enthusiasts to say, I only need my insurance for an hour. So they've gone from such a complicated drone-specific mapping system to saying, we need to make money pretty quickly, and we're just going to spin it and pivot into something different. My main concern would be what we were discussing earlier, the, the bees on our rooftops. Uh, um, we've got beehives apparently on the, on the top of the fifth floor. I need so, to go and have a look at them. So, yeah, because we heard you liked bees. I do, I um, do. So is there, uh, t going a little bit off piste, um, any, anything about beehives that you could en envisage <laughs> uh, a, a prop tech shaking up? No, but what I do like, now I'm going to give you a bit of a geeky stat here. So in the summer, there's about 50,000 bees in a beehive. Um, in the winter, it'll go down to about 5,000, all right? And they stay in the bees, in the, in the hive. And one of the jobs of the bees is to keep the colony at around about 36, 37 degrees year-round. Because the whole point is they have to protect the queen. The queen yeah. is the one, which I can't believe we're going into this private <laughs> 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 podcast. So that's, that's the one objective that they have. And it doesn't matter if it's minus 10 outside or if it's 40 degrees outside. They have to keep the hive. So in the summertime, they're fanning outside. In the wintertime, they, the 5,000 bees basically wrap themselves in a ball around the queen. And they vibrate their bodies to keep her warm because they want, you know, they, they only survive for six weeks in the summer and six months over the winter. But the queen bee will survive for five or six years and she'll continually lay. Anyway, long convoluted story is one of the main problems as beekeepers is actually understanding if the hive is at that consistent temperature. So a bit of geeky tech is um, looking at sensor based technology to understand the heat which is coming out of that beehive. So you can remotely look at your phone and just make sure that the hive is actually at 36 degrees or if you need to help it in some way. I, I was worried that you were going to go with sort of office workers surrounding their C-suite <laughs> and uh, keeping them, them warm in the winter. So I'm relieved that's not where you were going with that. No, man, no, no. Even more geeky than that. <laughs> and yeah. that, maybe, that maybe that's kind of a good good tip for any clients who are really looking to go into alternative sectors is uh, Internet of Things sensors in beehives. In beehives, the, damn right. Def Absolutely. Definitely a new that. area. Well, I think with that... Um, it's been great having you, James, and been great here, and it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.